Hi, you're listening to It Happened to Me, a rare disease and medical challenges podcast. The mission of our podcast is to support you, our listeners, and to create community as you confront the toughest challenges in life. All of us will experience health hardships. The real question is how we adapt. That's the focus of It Happened to Me, which wants to help you overcome limitations and live a full and satisfying life. Drawing on their own health challenges, co-hosts Kathy Gildenhorn and Beth Glassman interview guests who share stories and research to help you succeed in the face of difficult health obstacles. It happened to me, I'm not alone, and neither are you. Fern Merlino was born with Pierre Robin syndrome. PRS, as we will call it, is a rare congenital birth defect that affects the cranial facial development. Navigating life as a patient from a young age sparked a passion for science, medicine, advocacy, and ultimately inspired her to pursue a career in genetic counseling. Perrin currently works as a clinical research coordinator for the Palliative and Advanced Illness Research, or PEAR Center, at the University of Pennsylvania. There, she supports multiple studies focused on improving the effectiveness and efficiency of specialty palliative care services for seriously ill patients. With our co-producer, Kira Deneen, Corinne also serves as communications lead for the DNA Today podcast for over three years. Kira is joining us today as a guest host for this conversation. In 2020, Corinne received her BS in Biology and Healthcare Ethics from St. Joseph's University. Now, Corinne will be a graduate student in genetic counseling at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Corinne. It's a pleasure to have you on. It happened to me today. So let's start with the basics. What is Pierre Robin syndrome? So you touched on this a little bit, Beth, but it's a congenital birth defect, which means it's present at birth, um, and it's characterized by um, micronathia or a small lower jaw. I apologize in advance. I'm going to talk with my hands a lot today. <laughs> uh, micronathia, which is a small lower jaw, uh, glossoptosis, which is displacement of the tongue, um, and ultimately a cleft palate, um, which was one of the most major um, phenotypic presentations that I suffered from. Um, and I should also note that Pierre-Robin syndrome can also be called Pierre-Robin sequence um, because of the nature of the disease. Um, so it's called a sequence because the condition is caused by um, a chain of events that occur in the oral cavity during um, embryonic development. So the lower jaw um, forms to be too small, which results in the displacement of the tongue, which ultimately causes the cleft palate because the tongue prevents the palate from um, forming completely. Um, so that's what um, ultimately causes the, the main symptom. So you're saying the cause occurs in the mouth. What are the repercussions of that? Yeah, so um, most children that are born with Pierre-Robin syndrome um, often experience um, feeding difficulties. Um, that's one of the main concerns because without the palate, um, if you're fed normally, um, like a, a 
parent would breastfeed or bottle feed a baby um, without the palate, the food goes right up the nose and there's a lot of risk for choking. Um, oh. So babies born with PRS typically um, require specialized feeding um, bottles or a feeding tube if they're not able to um, get enough nutrition via bottle feeding. Um, some children have breathing difficulties um, depending on um, the extent of the of the craniofacial symptoms. Um, children can have hearing issues and, and issues with speech and development in those areas. So Corinne, how did your parents feed you? Uh, there were, I forget the name, but there was a special bottle that basically like prevented air from, from going in through and it was a special bottle top and I would have, they would have to feed me upright. Um, that way the food could actually go down my throat instead of up my nose okay. if I was Did that take a long time normally. to do that feeding? Yeah, a very long time. And feedings were a really stressful time oh. for my mom, so I'm told. Um, it caused a lot of distress for me, which caused a lot of distress for, for her and my dad. Um, and they were the only people that could feed me because it was kind of hard to, to explain now, to is, someone else how to use a bottle that no one's ever seen. Is there any difference between the cleft palate that comes with the um, PRS and cleft palate that um, other children are just born with? Yeah, the only difference would be uh, the, the cause of the cleft palate. Um, so it can either be due to environmental conditions. So um, cleft palates are actually really common in twins because there's a lot of crowding in the womb. So hmm. if you're not able to, this is not a scientific term, but like unfold properly <laughs> during embryonic mm -hmm. development um, and, and the tongue is displaced, that can, that can prevent the palate from forming or their genetic causes um, that, that alter the, the sequence of embryonic development that result in a cleft palate. Hmm. So, Karen, is this considered to be a genetic condition? Yeah, so kind of like I just said, um, so paraband syndrome can be either isolated, which is what I have, meaning it occurs on its own, um, or it can be um, part of other conditions. Um, Stickler syndrome is one of them um, that affects bones beyond the, the craniofacial skeleton. Um, I have isolated Pierre-Robin syndrome, and in isolated cases, um, the gene that's typically implicated um, is the SOX9 gene or areas in and around that, um, and the SOX9 gene encodes a protein that plays a really important role in skeletal development in the embryo, um, so it happens really early on in, in embryonic development, um, this, this whole chain of events. Hmm. And then, Corinne, for your parents, you're the first child in the family. Um, and so when they were going through with your pregnancy, I mean, at what point did they figure out that you might have something different with cleft palate? At what point were they figuring out, oh, it's Pierre Robin? Um, do you know the timeline? Because obviously, like, you don't remember because you were in <laughs> utero or just being born. Yeah, so they didn't find out my mom had a normal, healthy pregnancy. She had done... Um, on a basic prenatal screening for um, chromosomal um, anomalies, and, and that all came back clear. Ultrasounds were normal, um, and it wasn't until I was born. She had a healthy pregnancy up until um, right around like the week that I was due. I came a little bit early, um, but I was breached, and they, they ended up having to perform a C-section, so um, wasn't um, a vaginal birth, and it wasn't until I was born that they knew that I had a cleft palate. And then um, I think a few weeks later, they met with 
um, a genetics team at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I was transferred from from where I'd been born to a to a specialized hospital, and and then a few weeks, I think, after I was born, it was officially labeled as Fiera Band syndrome. But they knew the day that I was born that I had a cleft palate. Um, they whisked me away. My parents had no clue <laughs> what what was happening. Um, so yeah, they had no um, notice, and I was the first child, so they were just kind of nervous anyway mm-hmm. to be parents. And then throwing this all in the loop—a baby that can't feed normally and and may have breathing issues and a whole lifetime of complications—it was definitely um, stressful and, and scary for them. But I think they they handled it as well as they could have. Clearly, they did. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. It's tough because ultrasound, we can see a lot, but we can't see everything. Mm. And we're also talking about, you know, ish, 25-ish years ago. Yeah. So that's something else to keep in yes. mind that, you know, it's not like Karim was born yesterday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's that's an aspect that like, you know, cleft lip, that's much easier to see um, with ultrasound. But cleft palate is harder because you're, you know, if you guys are watching this video, you're you're looking inside the mouth there and so you've got a lot crowding it whereas lips you can kind of just look right away I with see. that you know f- 3d ultrasound and, and looking at it that way so with your experience and you know really your parents experience of your diagnostic odyssey it was relatively short i mean you can look at a baby and see a cleft palate and then kind of be figuring out okay well what led to that and what else should we consider like you mentioned you know m- like at the time they might have been like oh do you have a a not an isolated case where there's other things we need to be concerned about. Is this a typical timeline or were you late to be diagnosed early, at least for people 25 years ago? Like, I don't know, maybe it's changed since. Yeah, I think for people 25 years ago, it it seems pretty um, on brand and it was pretty easy then when I was born for them to to look at the, the phenotypic presentation of of what I was born with and and decide that it was Pierre Robin syndrome versus Stickler syndrome or, or other conditions where, where a cleft palate um, is present, just because of, again, the small jaw, the displaced tongue, um, and and knowing how what the course of treatment would be from there. But I think now it's a little bit different, especially with um, more invasive prenatal screening. And you can figure out, oh, if you're going to have a baby that's born with Stickler syndrome, you can kind of plan for these things. Um, but like you said, even on ultrasound now, it's really hard to, to see. It's easy to see a cleft lip, but it's not easy to see a cleft palate. Um, but the only difference is, so when I was first born, I think we'll get into this a little bit later, but I had to wait 10 months before I had surgery. Mm. Um, and now I think they're doing surgeries much sooner. So I think the treatment, the course of like diagnosis and treatment has changed a little bit. But from what I know, it's it's not so different. You kind of really can't officially know until after um, birth because there's not like a concrete genetic test for Theroban syndrome. Now, what kind of doctor uh, and what kind of specialist would be able to identify that the cleft palate was Pierre Robin? And how would you, uh, you know, know when to uh, bring these doctors into the process? Yeah, so I we're really lucky. We um, I grew up um, and was born right outside of Philadelphia, so we have easy access to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and they actually have a specialized um, cleft lip and palate. Uh, program under their overall craniofacial program. Um, And Pierroban syndrome is one of the conditions that they see. Um, And it's about 25 minutes from my house. So um, once I was born and (laughs) we knew that there were some things going on, uh, my parents met with the genetics team at CHOP and that's how they were able to to confirm that it was PRS and not and not something else. And 
Um, and then I was lucky. So part of the cleft lip and palate program, you see an audiologist to monitor your hearing. Um, and I had had some, some hearing issues early on in life. You see a speech pathologist, you see just a general pediatrician. I, I have a plastic surgeon um, who, who I say have two different ones. I, I started with one, he retired, and then I uh, saw a separate plastic surgeon for my later surgeries. Um, Friends, did you one. have it speech issues? Not anything severe, like typical, um, like TH or F for TH substitution. Like uh -huh. I have to brush my teeth, um, like kind of normal things that, that kids do. Um, they were actually really shocked that I didn't have more yeah. significant speech issues. Um, and throughout my development, like I said, I was monitored by a team of like eight plus specialists for mm. kind of the first 18 years of my life. Um, would see every doctor at least once a year, if not if not more in between. And um, the only thing related to my speech is that because my palate is short, I had a palate repair um, that used tissue from my throat to repair it so that food wouldn't go up my nose anymore. Um, but then as I hit puberty, my adenoid pads, which are like on the back of your throat, I relied apparently very heavily on my adenoid pads to make contact with my palate when I when I speak and, and talk and laugh and eat and things. So when you hit puberty, your adenoid pads shrink. Um, so after I was about like 13, I have a lot of air escape, um, especially when I'm speaking quickly um, or I'm eating. Sometimes I get food that goes up my nose or um, doesn't go down the right pipe. Um, so other than air escape, um, like hypernasality when I speak, I, I luckily don't have um, any major speech issues. After um, the first few years of my life, the hearing issues subsided. I had uh, tubes put in to help drain the fluid, but I suffered from chronic ear infections for, for the first few years of my life. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm very lucky that, that it wasn't more severe. And what were some of the surgeries? Because I know you've had multiple, you know, throughout your childhood. Did you have any in adulthood or it was more like before 18? Yeah. So my first one, I said they waited until I was 10 months old to allow the tissue in my throat to expand to kind of repair um, the gap in my palate and then had tubes put in my ears to drain fluid when I was like a toddler. Um, and then I was really lucky. I went quite a few years without surgery. It was kind of a wait and see every year I would go back in July and they'd say okay nothing nothing actionable right now we'll wait and see till next year and then wait and see became okay we need to do something um so because my lower jaw was really underdeveloped um actually suffered from an underbite um and so when you have an underbite they can do one of two things they can bring your lower jaw backwards or they can bring your upper jaw oh. forward um, and one of the, the presentations of Pierrot-Band syndrome is a really flat face um, and delayed mid-facial development. So when I was um, a freshman in high school, I was like 14, 15, um, I had a Lafort osteotomy one, which is where they take um, the bones, kind of just your upper jaw bone below the nose and bring it forward um, to then kind of bring the middle of my face forward and help alleviate the underbite that I had. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. That must have and been then, major, <laughs> it's major surgery. Yeah. yeah, my jaw was wired shut oh. for six weeks. Oh, oh no. Um, had to <laughs> eat liquids for a while. Oh, um, I had to finish, I had the surgery in May. So I had finished um, the remainder of my freshman year of high school from home um, because of the recovery timing. I was really active in sports and stuff growing up. So in order to be recovered in time for um, 
the next year sports seasons and, and hope to play and not not miss anything and also to allow time part of it was i had to have braces on on my top and bottom teeth so that they could wire my jaw shut and and there was a lot of like pre-orthodontic work that went in so it was kind of a balancing act between okay the teeth are ready and also like we're doing this as early as we can so that you have time to recover um and so they move the upper jaw forward they break the jaw move it forward and then they secure it with titanium plates and screws um and then recovery it, it'll, it takes more than six months for the swelling to go down oh my um, goodness. so at the time i think i didn't didn't look that weird but now i look back at pictures and like oh my gosh like i thought i looked like great was like 100 percent recovered and it's like six months later i'm like i can't believe i was walking around like that wow well um, you look beautiful then, now i gotta uh, say it's worth it but how did you cope i mean you're in high school that's a time where you want to be out and about and you had to live within your home for six months uh, yeah. Six weeks. It's, I mean, it's, it's, six, well, six weeks, yeah. but then six months recovery, was it? Yeah, six months. Like, I really didn't look like myself. Um, swelling, especially in the face, takes a while to go down. Oh, my God. Um, no, it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, I feel very blessed. Like, although I've had this experience, I feel very blessed that it hasn't impacted every aspect of my life. And I, I look relatively I don't want to use the word normal, but I you, you, you would look beautiful. at me and not know that I've been through something. Yeah. You're a little bit more than yeah. normal. Yeah. Than <laughs> I never never yeah. would have known no. when I met you that this was your background. No. I mean, you, you had no said one, that when we first met, but yeah, it's... but no one does, and so it's this weird thing where I kind of balance like this is a huge part of my identity. It's something crazy that that I've gone through, that my family has gone through, and and I, I still experience some kind of side effects from the surgeries and just the condition in general. But I. I feel kind of lucky that I that I am able to kind of go about my life and kind of forget about it sometimes. Yeah. Um, reflecting on it for this has been been interesting. And reflecting on it, I talked about it in my personal statement for graduate school. Um, so yeah, coping was definitely, I think, being able to just kind of rely on my friends and my family and, and, and know that there was a, and feeling grateful. I mean, there are kids that have six surgeries a year or oh, more for, for their entire lives. And it's, it's very apparent that they have a craniofacial condition. So I kind of balance this, like feeling lucky and feeling guilty, um, like knowing that it could be worse and, and feeling lucky that, that it's not. Well, you were the firstborn in your family, correct? And I'm yes. wondering, were your parents, do you have siblings? I do. I have twin brothers who are about two years, two and a half years younger than me. Well, were your parents worried about having another child with Pierre Robin? Um, what were the risk factors? What are the risk factors? Mm -hmm. So uh, when my mom was pregnant with my brothers, um, they they obviously didn't know they were twins at first. Um, but when I when they had gone through genetic testing, obviously they. I had received genetic testing as a baby, but they also um, tested my parents to see if it was something that they passed on or um, we learned that it was de novo and something that just happened in me that wasn't from them. Um, and so when they did that, they they realized that their risk of having another child with Piero Band syndrome or even a cleft palate in general was no more than population level risk. Hmm. Now, 20 to 40 percent of cases of PRS are isolated, as you mentioned, yours is, meaning there are no other symptoms. But what about the other cases? Can Pierre Robin be part of a larger syndrome? 
you had mentioned. Yeah, I think I mentioned, I mentioned Stickler syndrome. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the one that, that stands out. Like I said, it's, they share, um, kind of similar, um, causes they they both affect the skeleton it's just a matter of of where um piero band syndrome is um, concentrated in the oral cavity and stickler syndrome kind of expands and affects the ears and other areas of the body i believe they have um some cardiac issues as well um and so it's actually interesting when um piero band syndrome is isolated it, it's typically de novo or a new mutation but um when it's inherited with um, something like Stickler syndrome, I think it actually follows the inheritance pattern of the condition that that it um, coincides with. Gotcha. Yeah, I want to say Stickler syndrome is autosomal recessive. I should probably I should probably look that up while you were talking. <laughs> um, but so because of that, your mom, when she was pregnant with your twin brothers, she didn't have any extra screenings. I'm sure that they were just, you know, normal ultrasounds. But mm-hmm. at that point, it was more like, oh, now this is a twin pregnancy. So it's high risk for those reasons, like all twin pregnancies are. Yeah, they had done, again, the like typical, um, like thir- trisomy 18, 13, 18 and 21. Um, but she didn't undergo because they had undergone genetic testing um, when they were trying to figure out what I had. Um, they didn't receive any any additional screening or testing and you're right the pregnancy was monitored um more closely because it was a twin higher risk pregnancy yeah yeah and so you know if you and your partner decide to have biological children is there a chance that you could pass this on to a child like you said it's a random mutation in you that has led to Pierre Robin and this the sequence we've been talking about with the um, the small jaw and then your your tongue is really pushing up into your palate so that's not forming correctly so it's it's you know this the sequence as we've been talking about so is there a risk if you have biological children yeah it's I when I saw this question on this sheet actually it's not something that I've really thought about a lot just because I'm obviously of a reproductive age but I'm not really thinking with that lens yet but it's a good good reminder i'm pretty sure like the few times that i have looked into it because it's a de novo mutation i think there's like maybe a three to five chance kira you've gone through graduate school so you might be able to know this <laughs> a little bit more than i can but i think de novo mutations can be passed on but it's it's a really low 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 percentage um so that's obviously that, something that, that sounds I'll right think about yeah something that i'll be thinking about and definitely um i'll pursue testing when i'm kind of in that in that headspace and I'm, and I'm ready to have kids. Um, cause it's definitely, yeah, we could book be. a session. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Carrie, you have to stay in prenatal until I have kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and prenatal myself, I'll just, right. Then you can take a mirror and, you small, know, do a nice yeah. session. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I take it back. Stickler syndrome is autosomal dominant, so it's not recessive. Um, that way we don't have listeners emailing in saying Kira's wrong again. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> And, and one cool thing that I think has come out of this for you is your experience of volunteering as a peer supporter for Philly Faces, which is just like the coolest name. Um, and you guys spell Faces PH to match with Philly. Yes. Can you share about this organization, what it provides patients, and, and how your role has evolved over the years? Because I imagine you started as one of the kiddos in it, and now it's on the flip side. Yeah, um, so this was years ago, really, um, that Philly Faces started. It's a nonprofit organization that's kind of funneled through the craniofacial program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, and it's a nonprofit that's just really focused on supporting kids with craniofacial anomalies and their families. Um, they host a, a wide variety of events um, to get kids with craniofacial anomalies together in a, in a, in a room where everyone looks like them. Um, and some of my favorite events and 
ironically, this was happening when I was having my, my craniofacial surgeries. Um, there was a dog named Lentil Bean, um, who was from the <laughs> Philadelphia area. Um, and he and his mom, Lindsay, would actually attend an event um, called the Best Friends Bash. And it was a co-hosted event between the Chop Craniofacial Program, Philly Faces, and um, Penn Veterinary Medicine. Penn has a huge... Um, very specialized veterinary surgery center. Um, so taking dogs with craniofacial conditions, um, cleft lips, cleft palates, other craniofacial anomalies, cancers of the face, um, and then bringing them to this event with kiddos to, to allow kids to, to see a dog that looks like them and, and make them understand that, oh, a dog just had the same surgery that I did. And like, how cool is that? Um, so that was that was one of my favorite events, just seeing people come together and, and seeing how involved the families are. Um, and I know it means a lot to, to kids with craniofacial conditions to see other people that look like them and, and just kind of feel feel like everyone in the room looks like them, which is something that, that doesn't happen often. Um, we would also go into schools and, and using the book Wonder, um, which yes. I feel like a lot of people know about now. There's also a movie uh, with Jennifer Gardner um, using the book Wonder as a tool um, and talking to kids and going in with, with other patients and, and their parents and talking to kids in elementary schools about choosing kind and, and, and knowing that people are more than what they look like on the outside. Um, so I've had a lot of wonderful opportunities to, to volunteer and advocate for, for other kids with craniofacial conditions. And it's, it's a great organization. Yeah, no, it, it definitely sounds like it. And, and and I'm curious, are you still being followed up at all? Or do most people age out when they get to, you know, early adulthood like you're in now? Or I don't know, yeah. do you, is your 20s still early adulthood? Like I, <laughs> I consider myself and I'm only like two years old. <laughs> in, so. Yes, for the purposes of today's talk, uh, 25 is early adulthood. Yes, um, perfect. And so is, so is 27, 28. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah, so uh, typically kids can be followed at CHOP. It used to be 18. Now it's 21 for certain conditions. Some people kind of push the boundaries on that. I was technically, I like to say, kicked out um, <laughs> when I was about 18. I had had another surgery after the Lafort osteotomy when I was like 15 um, because my body started to reject the titanium plates and screws oh, that were no. in my face. Um, and it caused a lot of pain, um, really anytime oh, I had congestion, kid. which is kind of often. Um, so I actually had a second, like a reversal of the first surgery to remove the plates and screws. Um, so I would say like six months to a year after that, that was when I was about 17. Um, so I would say 18, I was kind of done, um, receiving care at CHOP, um, and I still, now, now that I work at Penn, which shares a campus with CHOP, um, I actually just got coffee with my plastic surgeon, Dr. Taylor, um, a few oh. weeks ago. Um, and now it's cool because I'll get to work, um, and go through clinical rotations at Penn, um, and, and work in a clinic that my parents probably went to and, and interact with all of these people that I've known as a patient over the years. And, and now I'll get to be a student and then hopefully, um, a colleague, which is just, so cool and so full circle and i'm so excited it's so full full circle i just remember yeah. so many conversations as you were applying to schools and us having <laughs> having these talks of like wouldn't it be great if you match with Penn? and like here we are oh, yeah well, and it turned out it was so really wonderful. helpful as i was yeah once i knew that i wanted to be a genetic counselor i i had the end of um the the patient family liaison for the craniofacial program. When I told her that I was interested, she was able to set me up with the person who coordinates all of the shadowing for genetic counselors at CHOP. And, and, and I'm sure Kira knows shadowing genetic counselors is a really 
kind of hard experience to come by, especially now um, with like post COVID hospital restrictions. So um, I was really lucky to be able to shadow like multiple genetic counselors and announce school. A lot of the people that I shadowed will now be my teachers in my program. So I'm really excited. That's field. Corinne, congratulations. Congratulations on being accepted as, as a student at Penn. And uh, lucky for us, I think that you have chosen genetic counseling. You obviously are passionate about it. And, and I have to assume, in my taking a leap, that having PRS led you to this career choice? Uh, that would be a very safe assumption. Yeah. <laughs> um, I talked about it in my personal statement and, and a lot in my in my interviews with programs. But um, it really gave I, I knew for a very long time that that I wanted to do something clinically with patients and ideally work in pediatrics. Um, it taught me the value of autonomy. If I if I look through um, my chart from when I was a patient, I think a lot of the notes say like, patient and her parents or patient and her mom who was usually at my visits with me i was involved in all of these conversations mm. they they had proposed for me to have other surgeries they wanted to put an extension on my palate again because of the air escape and hypernasality and i was really nervous that it would affect the way that i speak and i would kind of have to like relearn how to talk with this extra <laughs> skin in my throat um and so i i was like if it's not medically necessary and then it, it's not something that i want to do i was like 15 at the time and um and they totally respected and supported that decision so um it really taught me the value of autonomy and and I always felt like my my team was speaking not just to my parents but also to me even as a kid um so I think it really being involved in those conversations really um gave me an appreciation for autonomy and 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 receiving specialized care I realized how lucky I am that we are so close to CHOP. People come from all over the world to, to receive care there. And the fact that we're 25 minutes away and I could receive yeah. uh, such specialized care um, and be followed so closely. And, and the fact that, that I can walk by my surgeon on the sidewalk and I haven't been a patient of his in years and he would still know who I am and come up and give me a hug. It's just like such a cool yeah, thing. So, so yeah, Brian. I think I've always been interested in science, but the patient care aspect of it really influenced my decision. Corinne, you have talked about now multiple surgeries and some of the surgeries didn't go quite the way uh, you, uh, doctors had expected or, or you would have wanted. How did you cope throughout your childhood? with these multiple surgeries, uh, you're talking about making decisions, really being part of the team. This is a lot of responsibility for a young person. How'd you get through this? Yeah, I mean, my parents are both so wonderful. They obviously took me to all of my appointments and were there for every surgery. And my mom spoon fed me afterwards. And while I was hating my life because I was eating the same tomato soup every day, and then Aww. she was just a saint through it all. So um, definitely, definitely my parents, especially my mom. Um, and like I said, I think being able to kind of like compartmentalize this part of my life and 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 resuming relatively normal activities like i think just knowing that it could have been a lot worse and being able to kind of like put this part of my life aside and kind of deal with it when i felt like dealing with it and then being able to to go about my normal activities my sports and being really interested in school and i think channeling it into a career that i'm excited about like i feel so lucky even though this experience was obviously horrible at times i feel so lucky that i've had this experience because i don't think that i would have 
come to genetic counseling and just the fields of science and medicine and research and in general, if I haven't had this experience. So I think kind of framing it as like feeling lucky that I have this experience and, and get to do something that I'm so passionate about is like a, is a good silver lining. Like I'll, I'll take the experience I had if it's given me this, you know. Quinn, you have the most positive outlook. <laughs> I am listening. I am listening to you and you embody everything that we need in order to face adversity. It's exactly what Kathy and I talk about all the time, strategies for coping with a difficult situation. And you have answered every question. Uh, you're talking about being grateful, being grateful to your parents, being grateful to your surgeons, being grateful to the team, uh, being involved in school uh, activities and doing advocacy work. Is there anything I left out that any other avenue that you have pursued that has helped <laughs> you cope with this adversity? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, it's already sure. a long it's list. A very, like, yeah. very I feel like I'm I mean, missing something. You are an example. When you, when you write it us. all out like that or say it all out like that, it's <laughs> kind of a this, lot. As long as we thank the parents, that's the most important, right? So we yeah, check that like you have to. You win an award. Like, I'd like to thank my family and then yes. my friends. Yes. Um, the academy. Wait, you know. but, <laughs> yeah. But, Grant, it's every your, your positivity, though, the very essence of you is to me what I hear that has helped you cope, that being a positive person and not a woe is me, not why is the world against me, but I am lucky. I heard you say that over and over, I am lucky. And it, the fact that you're going out and speaking to other people and talking about, I am lucky, I made it through and I can help others, I feel good about that. I am proud of you, Corinne, and I am proud to know you. Thank, Thank you. you so much for being a guest today. Absolutely. Of course. I, I want to touch on on the luck. I think it's very easy for me to say I, yes. I feel lucky again because I can kind of compartmentalize this yes. part of my life. There are many people that, that aren't able to walk around and, and not have the world know that, that they have something going on medically. Um, so I think just just acknowledging that is important. I feel lucky that that I've been able to twist this into a positive experience. And I think just also, it's not like I, not that I would ever blame my parents if I did, but knowing that this was just a random thing that, that happened and it was out of everyone's control, I'd be wasting a lot of, a lot of energy being angry at the world um, because it was really just a freak change that happened and obviously impacts my life very heavily, but I feel mostly grateful for for the experience thank you for giving us this lesson thank you for giving us this lesson and teaching us what it takes to be a positive person it's been wonderful i mean thank you corinne for being here today you're thank you for having oh, me we're just thrilled to have you your attitude and perspective as beth said is inspirational and the way you have tackled medical challenge in your life it, with career and career choices and education and volunteerism and advocacy is just wonderful to see. And really something that's a gift to us all to just remind ourselves of what it's all about. 
And thank you. Great luck to you and your future as a genetic counselor. So many patients will be so lucky to have you. And as you said, you had to go through what you went through to end up where you are. And just all wonderful, wonderful things and the best of luck. And thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you guys. It was awesome to be on today. And it's very full circle getting to record with Kira too. We've worked together for for three years now. And um, I I say the word podcast probably 35 times a week. So um, my first time on podcast. Yes. Well, (laughs) you've been doing all the background work for people listening. You are a star in the making, Corinne. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened to Me. We encourage you to learn more at ithappentomepod.com. Please use the contact form on our website to submit your guest suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, and feedback for the show. You can also email us directly at ithappentomepod at gmail.com. We would really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app like Apple or Spotify. This helps others in the rare disease and medical challenge community find us. It Happened to Me is created and hosted by Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman. I'm Kira Deneen from DNA Today, and I serve as our executive producer and marketing lead. Amanda Andrioli is our associate producer. Ashlyn Anokian is our graphic designer. And remember, it happened to me. I'm not alone, and neither are you.